This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters and audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. Totally More Investment Partners, 4th Quarter, 2021 Part 2 A Letter to Partners, December 2018, Symbiosis Dear Partners Over the past few years, I have discussed Tolly Moore's investment philosophy and process in detail in investment letters, interviews, articles and presentations. I have used investment decision-making examples as a mechanism for current investors and prospective allocators to understand how I make decisions, and allow them to judge the consistency of these decisions with the key principles of the investment strategy. As an emerging investment management firm Tollymore has the advantage of organically building a set of aligned investment partners, deeply appreciative and practically aware of the significant behavioral edge that a long-term mindset affords in public market investing, investors who think like business owners rather than traders. Key elements of such a symbiotic relationship between manager and client are transparency, integrity and authenticity. As such, this letter delves deeper into the investment merits of the portfolio's largest holdings, as well as the most recent investment. Understanding the intrinsic value potential of a portfolio allows successful money managers to stay the course in periods of self-doubt. By being transparent about the companies we own and why we own them I hope to give investors the tools to share my fundamental appreciation of the portfolio's potential, allowing them to invest countercyclically to the ultimate benefit of the investment partnership's capacity to sustainably create value for all partners. The partnership's four largest holdings, in alphabetical order, are Americo, Jim Group, I Group and TripAdvisor. All four companies are founder-led, provide enduring products and services, and have demonstrative capacity to generate sustained supernormal profits. They differ in their scope for organic capital reinvestment into valuable projects, and therefore the importance of the stock's multiple of owner earnings in determining the potential IRR available to equity owners. One thing they all also have in common is that they screen terribly. Reasons are various and are discussed below. Screens miss one of the most compelling sources of mispriced securities, those companies whose reported financials poorly reflect the underlying cash earnings power of the business, due to for example high reinvestment rates, inappropriate accounting policies or business model transitions. All such examples are described below. Americo, U-Hall. U.S. Americo ticks all the boxes of a reinvestment moat, stewarded by excellent long-term business owners and capital allocators, and trading at a modest multiple of normal earnings power. The DIY moving market was essentially created with the founding by Leonard and Anna Schoon of Americo in 1945. Today 40% of movers in North America are DIY versus professional moving companies. Schoon spent decades signing up landowner franchisees across North America, developing a network across the country which allowed users to collect vehicles in one location and drop off at another facilitating inter-city house moves. U-Haul, the brand behind Americo, has made the most of its first mover advantage by aggressively expanding its network of franchised moving service locations. Each additional location increases the value of existing locations by enabling more convenient pickup and drop-off logistics for an increasing number of moving routes. This should increase the steady-state asset utilization of the business. Franchisees are attracted by the number of U-Haul customers. Customers are attracted by the convenience of franchise locations. This virtuous circle drives market share and revenue growth, which has been reinvested in more locations and vehicles, making U-Haul's dominance increasingly difficult to replicate. 
Today U-Haul has eight times as many locations as its nearest competitor, and four times as many trucks. Management has clearly identified the source of the moat for this business and has continually reinvested capital in widening it over time. This network advantage limits the ability to add supply in the one-way, inner-city moving market. Trucks are necessary for moving but people move infrequently. These characteristics lend themselves to a rental business model. Moving depends on idiosyncratic factors such as the need to upsize, downsize, get divorced, get married, move jobs, attend and leave college etc. The need for more affordable housing is a significant reason for moving, likely a countercyclical driver of volumes. If humans live in houses, regardless of how those houses are financed, and if changing life circumstances cause them to move home several times through their lifetimes, none of these drivers of demand is set to change materially long into the future. It is very possible, however, that Americo captures an increasing share of the total costs incurred in making these moves. Another example of management directing capital to widening the business's unfair advantage is the development of movinghelp.com. Movinghelp.com is a platform bringing together supply of and demand for moving labor. As the number of providers of labor grows, the more users are attracted by greater availability. The accumulation of independent reviews also creates stickier supply and encourages better customer service, increasing demand. The U-Haul brand is well-recognized and ubiquitous. There are 65% more U-Haul locations in the North American network, 20K, than there are Starbucks coffee shops, 12K. The orange and white livery and U-Haul logos adorn its 100K trucks, 80K trailers, 20K truck rental nodes and 1,100 storage locations, serving as a free mobile and ubiquitous advertising machine. Since its inception U-Haul has grown its dominance in DIY moving. Several competitors have tried to enter or grow in the space, but none has succeeded in denting U-Haul's market share. The industry has consolidated down to three main players today, U-Haul, Budget Truck Rental, and Penske Truck Rental. Budget generates 15% of the revenue of U-Haul with a truck fleet one-quarter the size and has been retrenching. Highlighting the economies of scale in the industry and U-Haul's network advantage. The other major use of the company's operating cash flow has been the purchase and greenfield development of self-storage facilities. Like truck rental, self-storage is a commodity offering. The site acquisition and build costs are low, lowering barriers to entry. Hence there are many players in a fragmented industry. As fixed costs are high there may also be the temptation to cut prices to fill capacity. However, once tenants are secured, switching costs are high and so rent increases can be imposed. This, coupled with low maintenance costs and high operating leverage, mean that returns can ramp up quickly. Americo can use its U-Haul brand and ability to hook truck customers into the sales channel via its website to lower self-storage customer acquisition costs. This potentially lowers Americo's self-storage break-even price and occupancy versus peers. I think several factors suggest that the company's capital can be deployed at high incremental returns, a wider economic moat, industry consolidation, capital reinvestment into very high-margin self-storage services, operating leverage, and declining labor intensity as technology lowers the cost of generating business. Multiple avenues for earnings growth suggest that owner earnings reinvestment rates can continue to remain high for a long time. Continued share take in the self-moving market, less than half of the total moving market. Truck rental is subscale for existing players. Budget has been scaling back its fleet and Penske, the nearest competitor, has 10% of the number of locations U-Haul has. The overall moving market is C. $15 billion, U-Haul is less than one quarter of this. Encroaching into the professional moving market, greater than 50% of the market, which a fragmented, and therefore largely local, industry. 
There are 7K companies represented by the American Moving and Storage Association alone, representing 14K locations across the U.S. Half of these businesses employ fewer than five people. The sustainability of the professional moving segment seems threatened by the scale of U-Haul's network, provision of moving helpers through moving help, and the potential introduction of autonomous vehicles. The investments into moving help could be a significant enabler of this. Finally, the self-storage industry is twice the size of the moving industry, c. $30 billion. This is a fragmented market in which there are synergies with the moving business. Given these two factors, it is possible that certain storage assets are worth more to AmerCo than other. Bidders. AmerCo can rebrand the acquired facility with the ubiquitous U-Haul logo and link it to its online reservation system, immediately connecting the assets to AmerCo's large customer base. None of AmerCo's competitors, either in the self-storage or the moving space, can exploit this synergy to the same extent. Since we initially acquired shares in February 2017 for $370 per share, the stock has fallen 9%, materially lagging the market over the last two years. There have been several short-term pressures on AmerCo's profitability over this period. There has been some pressure on operating profit margins due to the acceleration of truck and self-storage asset expansion and the tweaks to the company's depreciation policies to front-load tax-deductible depreciation ahead of the corporation tax reductions. The fleet increased 10% YI in 2018 but management expects this to be roughly flat in FY19 as truck acquisition slows and used truck sales pick up. EBITDA margins however continue to improve. Asset utilization has been constrained by low occupancy rates on self-storage assets and lower truck fleet utilization. However, self-storage square footage has increased 50% over the last three years and the CFO on the call stated that revenue per square foot continues to rise 3-4% YI and the average occupancy on units older than three years is 84%, versus 39% for units younger than three years. Given lofty self-storage market prices, Uhal has been focused on a build-versus-buy growth strategy with its associated larger drag on average occupancy. Finally, a collapse in used truck disposal profits was due to an effort to slow down sales and maximize the depreciable asset base ahead of the corporation tax rate change, and poor execution in underwriting the sale of waiver insurance, incurring elevated repair costs and getting vehicles into a sellable condition. The elevated disposal profits are something we highlighted in our original research and normalized for in the owner earnings calculation. Listening to AmerCo's investor conference calls is instructive. Some comments from participants on recent calls reflect a level of frustration at the long-term horizon of management's capital allocation choices, pleading for the installation of a regular dividend and buyback. I disagree. A dividend should be the last thing this company is doing, and despite the stock failing to remotely keep pace with the market's rally over the last few years, a buyback would shrink an already small free float. My sense is that management is making capital allocation decisions that are designed to maximize the total future economic value of the business. I don't care whether this is realized later versus sooner, if the company's investments are returning more than our opportunity cost of investing. With the company's widening moving and storage network advantage and a CEO who is paid less than $1 million per year but whose family owns most of the business, I think this is likely to be the case. Over the last 12 reported months of business operations AmerCo generated operating cash flow of almost $1 billion. AmerCo's enterprise value is less than 9x this number. With CapEx of over $1.7 billion AmerCo is currently generating FCF of C. Minus $700 million. Adjusting for C. $1.1 billion of growth CapEx, maintenance FCF equals plus $4 to $500 million, a 6-8% yield to the market cap for a business with evidence of high cash reinvestment rates and high incremental returns on capital.
Jim Group, Jim.Lane. Jim Group enjoys a cost advantage facilitated by superior asset utilization and a long runway for value accretive asset growth. Jim was founded in 2007 and is today the second largest low-cost gym operator in the UK. It runs 150 gyms and has 700k members. All revenues are generated from membership fees and joining fees. The company has a sense of purpose-slash-coherent mission, which is to help people improve their well-being, whatever their fitness of financial starting point or location. The fact that consistently 30% of new members have never been a gym member before suggests this mission is being accomplished. This is a relatively capital-intensive business. However, while 30-40% to 40% of revenues are spent on CapEx, circa 4-6% to 6% of revenues relate to maintenance CapEx. Jim is a market leader in a fragmented industry. There are over 2K private gym operators in the UK, running 3.7K private gyms. The 10 largest operators account for circa 650 gyms, 18% of the total number of private gyms, and gym accounts for circa 4% of all private gyms. The low-cost gym model has grown rapidly by addressing the barriers to gym membership, 1, high membership cost and, 2, being tied into contracts. The proposition of high quality, low cost appears to be well received, gym's net promoter score is very high, plus 60. 55% of new members come from referrals. Jim can profitably offer average membership 60% below private sector averages due to higher utilization of site space, 170 stations per gym versus 60 private market average, and limited wet-slash-racket-slash-cafe facilities-slash-24 to 7 opening hours, and the employment of technology rather than employees for customer sign-up and management. Customers enter the gym via a pin entry system. The joining process is online, or via on-site internet-connected kiosks, lowering customer acquisition and management costs. In reviewing thousands of potential sites over the years Jim has developed relationships with landlords and property agents. It is conceivable that the brand and Jim's strong covenant rating may be competitive advantages when it comes to securing new sites with landlords. Low-cost gyms have been growing 50% PA but low-cost gym membership in the UK is still only 3%. Low-cost gyms in the UK are 8% of the total. In the US and Germany half of gyms are low-cost, and rising, accounting for the higher gym penetration rates in those markets. The low-cost segment in the UK has both taken share from the traditional segment and grown the market, in every year since 2008 greater than 30% of new gym members have not been a gym member before. This has resulted in low-cost club CAGR of greater than 50% since 2011. Initial site investment costs have declined because of economies of scale. Gym fit-out contractors are awarded contracts through more competitive tender processes, better terms are agreed with equipment suppliers and service providers such as cleaning. The economic return on marketing spend has improved as the number of sites and members has grown. Estate maturation should improve margins. Average mature site EBITDA margin slash ROSE is 47% slash 32%. Yet the average site EBITDA margin is 40%, and the EBITDA margin for the group is 30%. In my view the principal risks that may cause the future to unfold in a less favorable way than the above analysis anticipates are, 1. Member churn slash customer response to real disposable income erosion. 2. Input cost inflation. And 3. Irrational and aggressive competitive reaction. Churn and customer demand elasticity. Members can cancel without charge at any time. To rejoin would incur a £20 fee. Annual membership attrition, cancellations net of rejoiners, is 100%. 30% of leavers rejoin. Management has stated that it does not consider cancellation to be a KPI for the business. This is for two reasons. 1. Cancellation improves membership yield as new members join at higher prices than cancelled members. And, 
2. The cost of acquiring a new member is less than the joining fee. This is due to marketing economies of scale and word-of-mouth recommendations. More than half of new joiners are costless referrals. Competitive response. Mid-tier gyms may cut their membership fees to compete with the increased popularity of low-cost fitness clubs. However, despite prices 60-70% to below mid-tier gyms, gyms' margin profile is vastly superior. This is also despite having a lower percentage of the estate comprising mature gyms versus established non-growing mid-tier competitors. Mid-tier and premium competitors have lower margins than gym. This lowers their headroom for profitable price cuts. The competitive response from the mid-tier slash premium segment seems to have been benign. Mid-tier slash premium operators have upgraded their service to warrant the premium they charge and or have increasingly targeted the top end of the market which they argue is not addressed by the low-cost segment. Mid-tier and premium gyms have consistently increased their fees each year. One mid-tier operator, Fitness First, did attempt to create a low-cost arm, opening Click Fitness in 2012 with six gyms. Just over 12 months later the group exited the subsector. The mid-tier peer group has been restructuring, with consolidation ongoing in the market. Leverage slash recession risk, in the event of a recession prices and memberships may erode. Jim has high financial gearing in the form of operating lease obligations. Given Jim's operating leverage mature site profitability would fall significantly should the business experience a marked revenue decline. I estimate that a 20% drop in revenues would reduce the owner earnings to £17 million from £40 million in a no-growth scenario. This is still a 5% yield to the current market cap. Current adjusted net debt slash EBITDAR equals 3.5x, assuming the maintenance profitability of the estate this is 2.5x. This would be 6x with a 20% revenue decline assuming zero capacity to cut 100% fixed costs, or 3.8x based on maintenance profitability. Under these assumptions Jim's EBITDA margin would be 13% slash and maintenance EBITDA margin 35% versus the current 30% rate, and 47% mature Jim rate. It is difficult to envisage a 20% revenue decline due to the immaturity and increasing penetration of low-cost gyms, as well as the 60-70% to price discounts versus mid-tier competitors. When U.S. membership growth was negative in 2012, Planet Fitness still grew its memberships by 28% yi. This might suggest that the large discount lowers the price elasticity of demand for budget gyms. High reinvestment rates mean gym screens poorly, with a P.E. ratio of 47x and a FCF yield of Negative 4%, many investors will write off Jim's investment merits. However, owner earnings. C, 40 million pounds, a 12% yield to the current market cap. These owner earnings are largely being directed to clearly above cost of capital projects. I estimate the total capitalized costs per new site are C, 1.5 million pounds, and the economic profit per gym is C, 0.3 million pounds, leading to after-tax returns on incremental capital in excess of 20%. So, for every pound of owner earnings invested, Jim can create two pounds of value. Unfortunately, the board has a progressive dividend policy with a 10 to 20% payout ratio target. With the company's unit economics and runway for growth I would prefer that 100% of earnings were reinvested in asset growth. However, 10 to 20% of reported earnings will be much lower than 10 to 20% of owner earnings. If 90% of owner earnings are reinvested in equity investment in Jim could yield annual returns more than 20%. ITE Group, ITE.Lane. What should a demanding investor be willing to pay for? A simple, founder-led business. A provider of an enduring service, reflecting a business practice which is hundreds of years old with a high utility-to-cost ratio. 
geographically and industrially diversified end markets. UK headquartered and listed enterprise. Capital intensity of 1-2% to of annual revenues. Strong FCF conversion of earnings due to deferred income balances 50-70% to of revenues. Average through cycle returns on capital of around 30%. Defensible moat facilitated by two-sided network effects barriers to entry. Revenue visibility, with two-thirds of following year's sales forward booked. Conservative capital structure. Organic revenue growth of 11%. IT is involved in one business activity, it organizes exhibitions and conferences. IT hires venues and gathers a group of exhibitors and visitors, monetizing the exhibitor side of the network by charging companies for floor space. The company operates across several sectors including construction, food, energy and travel and tourism and predominantly emerging market geographies. While multi-year agreements can be struck to secure venue capacity, these agreements have the flexibility to modify capacity commitments ahead of changes in demand. There is good revenue visibility thanks to forward bookings. Operating margins have been reasonably stable due to moderate operating leverage, but current levels of operating profitability of circa 22% are around 5 PPTS below mid-cycle levels. Some of the margin runoff has come as a result of deferred revenue increases, with exhibitors securing their participation at future events at more competitive rates. What therefore may be surrendered in terms of income statement profitability is recovered via working capital inflows and FCF conversion. Despite this, as we will discuss, management has a plan to restore the business to operating margins in the high 20s. IT is an appropriately capitalized business given high revenue visibility, strong repeat business and multi-year agreements. Despite £50 million of debt funded M&A in FY18, net debt equals £80 million, 1.4x EBITDA, two years of FCF and around one quarter of IT's equity. Revenue is recognized at the completion of an event, cash is received from exhibitors in advance and booked as deferred income. This is a costless source of finance and represents a working capital inflow when revenues are growing, but a drag on FCF when revenues decline, as they did FY15. This deferred income float has typically been circa 40% of sales, but since the founder of the business returned as CEO this has grown to two-thirds, strengthening cash conversion. A long track record of supernormal profits seems to emanate from two sources of competitive advantage. One, network effects, visitors are needed in order to attract exhibitors and vice versa, making it difficult for a non-established player to gain traction. And, two, intangible assets, trademarks and licenses to operate venues, databases of consumers and exhibitors, brand reputation that makes participants reluctant to move away from a tried and tested event. The value chain is symbiotic. Customers do not want competing trade shows, they want to know that their customers are going to be at the event they are attending that year. This is a form of efficient scale, there is only space for a handful of profitable operators within each region and industry niche. I have classified this as a legacy moat business, rather than a reinvestment moat or a capital light compounder due to the lack of greenfield organic opportunities to build new exhibitions around the world. However, IT does have a strong foothold in several emerging markets including China and India. IT has established market-leading positions through fully-owned subsidiaries and controlling interests in locally dominant exhibition brands. For example, it has a controlling stake in the market-leading conferences business ABEC in India which runs 20 exhibitions across the country. IT has offices in Beijing and Shanghai, operated through a JV with Hong Kong-based Sinostar. IT also runs conferences across Indonesia via JV partnerships and wholly owned subsidiaries. The organic growth trajectory has inflected positively, partly due to the economic stabilization in a number of IT's end markets, and partly due to a business improvement program put in place as a result of a change of CEO in 2016. 
A series of macroeconomic and geopolitical shocks have beset its end markets and impeded business progress in the three or four years prior to 2017. These included the Russia-Crimea crisis and resulting trade sanctions at a time when Russia was a much larger part of its business, and a 70% collapse in the price of oil-harming business in its energy-dependent Central Asian markets. This improvement in top-line growth should bode well for the capacity of the business to meaningfully increase underlying cash generation, especially given the strides management is making in collecting cash for conference pre-bookings. As we will discuss, the market implies that the exact opposite will happen, that the sustainable cash the business can generate will wither significantly, and the stock has continued to move in the opposite direction to the business's progress. As legacy moat business with limited opportunities to build new shows organically, M&A will always be part of management's capital allocation agenda. It is therefore important to understand the management team, their track record and incentives. The founder Mark Shishua has returned to the business with a plan to improve the organic growth potential and profitability of the current portfolio. He is divesting the least profitable, subscale events. He has executed this transformation playbook at I2I Events, which enjoyed a doubling of revenues and profits before being acquired by Essential Events under his five-year leadership prior to returning to IT, the company he founded in 1991. In 2018 I'd announced the acquisition of Essential Events Limited from Essential PLC, based on an EV of £300 million. The target assets comprise two global exhibitions brands, Bet and Queen, and several UK exhibitions brands such as the Spring and Autumn Fairs and Pure. The CEO and COO of I Group are very familiar with these assets, they ran them together 2011-2016 as CEO and CFO. Management incentives have improved with the management change and are reasonable but not standout. Base salaries for the CEO-slash-CFO are pound 450k-slash-pound-250k. Bonuses are a function of headline PBT, organic revenue growth, cash conversion and qualitative strategic targets. Well-tip awards are based on recurring EPS and relative TSR versus a combination of the FTSE small cap and FTSE 250 index constituents. What is interesting is that IT's earnings per share need to grow by 75% over the next two years for any of the tip to vest. For 100% of the tip to pay out IT needs to generate EPS of 14.4p by September 2020, almost treble the FY18 EPS, and a 25% yield to the current share price. All these measures were only introduced in 2017. While cash conversion is a sensible target, some measure of incremental returns on capital would be a welcome addition to the incentive program, given the high cash generation of the business and the limited obvious long-term redeployment opportunities. I would say that the track record of the new leadership and some incentive framework progression are improving stewardship of a demonstrably wide moat business that has suffered macro headwinds which have shown signs of dissipating. This is not a turnaround thesis, this is a fantastic, highly profitable business already, and one that can benefit from three tailwinds. 1. Cyclical-slash-macro mean reversion. 2. Structural portfolio improvement driven by positive management change. And or, 3. A potential re-rating of the shares to reflect the former drivers. The share price has collapsed since 2014 due to a series of macro and geopolitical events including the Russia-slash-Crimea crisis, oil price collapse and ruble depreciation. The share price has fallen by 50% in the last year to a 52-week low. More recently the company has suffered non-fundamental selling pressure as the portfolio has become much less emerging market-focused. In my view the company's stock price has moved in the opposite direction of the business's performance and private business value. IT's cash flow and owner earnings are materially higher than reported earnings per share due to a large deferred revenue float, impairments of prior capital allocation decisions and amortization of quasi-permanent assets such as customer relationships and internally developed brands. Trailing FCF of the business is C. 
30 million pounds, adjusting for restructuring costs and biennial events. This is 25% of ITE's equity and debt funding and 19% of core group revenues, excluding the contribution from essential. Organic revenue growth is running at double-digit levels. So that is what the business is generating. How is the market pricing that? The current £450 million market cap accounts for a £265 million rights issue funded acquisition completed in the summer. So, the market is valuing ITE's pre-acquisition cash flows at a 16% yield. This implies material FCF erosion in the core business or zero or negative FCF margins in the newly acquired assets. Or that IT has massively overpaid for essential. This despite the core business recording 11% organic revenue growth in 2018 and the acquired assets, which IT's management believe have been poorly managed, generating 31% EBITDA margins. So, did IT overpay for the deal? They believe they are paying 11.5xF slash EBITDA for an ungeared business that can grow revenues double digits. That seems reasonable. In the case of zero revenue or cost synergies they are paying 12.5xF slash EBITDA for a business with high barriers to entry and capex intensity of 1%. I don't think that is expensive. It may just be the case that IT is a better owner of this business because it is a core asset for them versus non-core for essential. This is consistent with the comments Essential have made about the deal, and with Mr. Shishua's prior comments to me about Essential not being a strong competitor as the company focuses on its data and analytics businesses. The market is not paying attention. I have spoken with large institutional owners of the shares appearing near the top of the register. For them IT is a small part of a diversified portfolio and their understanding of the deal and management's prior history with the assets reflected that. A conservative appraisal of private business value would imply 70% upside to the current price. That is if we capitalize the trailing FCF generation of the core business at 6% and add the rights issue capital we arrive at an owner's value of £750 to £800 million. The global industry is projected to continue to grow at 5% PA, with many of its markets expected to grow high single digits. This would also imply that management miss their own goals and will tip targets substantially, as previously discussed. In fact, management is targeting, and is over-executing, high single-digit revenue growth, margin expansion and large working capital inflows. This would result in FCF compounding 1.5x revenue growth. TripAdvisor, TRIP. US. One and two-sided network effects and a globally trusted, top-of-funnel, brand-strongly positioned TripAdvisor to take an outsized share of the growing global online travel market. I have discussed my views on the TripAdvisor investment case in prior letters, so I won't repeat them here. TRIP continues to strike me as a good example of investors' inappropriate application of linear projections to platform business models. TRIP's potential for potentially explosive low-cost growth emanates from its ability to tap into existing demand, travel and leisure visitors, and connecting it to acquired or developed supply, weator, la fourchette. Therefore, TRIP is strongly positioned to be the winner in two winner-take-all markets, restaurants and attractions. For both restaurants and attractions, the number of reviewed items is multiples higher than the number of bookable items. These low penetration rates of bookable inventory, 1% for restaurants, 8% for attractions, will provide a long volume growth runway. Adjusting the company's trailing FCF for stock-based compensation, TV advertising and non-hotel investments, assuming open table margins achievable on a normalized basis, I estimate the business is generating c. $400 million of owner earnings, a 6% yield to the current cash-adjusted market cap, and circa 60% of invested capital. It's clear that the opportunity and capital allocation priority for the business will remain reinvestment for a long time. If, 1, 
for every $100 we invest in trip it generates $6 of owner earnings, and, two, that $6 is all reinvested into projects which generate a recurring $3.60 PA, then trip has generated $36 of value, capitalized at our opportunity cost of 10%. Assuming average incremental returns on capital of 25% over the next decade and that three quarters of earnings are reinvested yields an IRR of circa 20%, and trip would be worth C. $40 billion over the next decade. I have written in the past about the importance of being able to execute a long-term investment strategy. The portfolio management decisions that I have taken, and documented, relating to our ownership of trip shares since September 2016 are an example of the freedom that a sound investment process, appropriate working environment and philosophy aligned to manager temperament can afford in making decisions that are consistent with our stated investment philosophy. Trip's quoted share price at the end of 2018 was $54, circa 11% lower than our initial acquisition price in September 2016. Yet TRIP's positive contribution is responsible for circa 8% of the cumulative performance of the portfolio since inception, thanks to an environment and investor base that allow us to make investment decisions which are consistent with a long-term business owner investment philosophy, that is to average down in the face of short-term market pessimism and reduce exposure in response to excessive exuberance. New Portfolio Investment In December 2018 we acquired shares of Trupanion, TRUP, at a price of $23.30 per share. Trup is a founder-led, simple one-product-one-geography business with single-minded focus on a niche service. Trup has a superior value proposition and strong competitive position afforded by gestation of distributor relationships, a data flywheel and customer switching costs. It operates in a large addressable market with a significant penetration opportunity affording a potentially multi-decade runway for compounding owner earnings. It may come as a surprise that Trup is also an insurance company. Trup provides medical insurance for cats and dogs in the US and Canada. The problem that Trupanion is trying to solve is that it is difficult for pet owners to budget for the magnitude and timing of pet illness and injury. Pet owners do not know the average costs of pet healthcare for the pets that they own. Even if they did, they would not know if their pets will be lucky or unlucky for that breed and location. Trupanion's solution is a cost plus insurance product which spreads the risk that the customer's pet is unlucky by subsidizing unlucky pets with lucky pet premiums. Like any insurance product Trupanion allows customers to budget for the unpredictable timing and magnitude of loss, in this case pet healthcare costs. The distribution of Trup's insurance products is primarily through vet and customer referrals. Trup uses a network of circa 100 independent contractors called Territory Partners to build long-term relationships with vets. They are responsible for making vets aware of the benefits of Trup's products to the vets' customers, with the goal of earning the trust of the vets. Like any insurer, Trup must estimate and hold reserves for vet invoices which have been incurred but not yet submitted, a complex process requiring subjective judgment. Unlike most insurers Trup is a cash-in, cash-out business, it does not have a substantial float, nor does the investment income from that float contribute meaningfully to the business's discretionary profits. Given pet insurance penetration rates in the US of 1%, Trup's primary competitor is the pet owner who chooses to self-fund pet healthcare costs with cash or debt. Trup is therefore focused on growing the addressable market versus taking market share from existing players. The primary challenge in achieving this is the education of pet owners about the merits of Trup's pet insurance. The nature of the insurance business model, risk is spread over a large membership for lucky pets to subsidize unlucky pets, is a barrier to profitable entry for small insurance providers. For example, given the fragmented nature of the vet industry, it would not be possible for individual vets to offer their customers insurance products. Trup is the largest player in Canada and the second largest in the US, behind Nationwide. 
Nationwide started in 1982 and was the first pet insurer in the U.S. It has circa 550k enrolled pets. Trump has rapidly grown to circa 500k pets and it is likely that Trump will become the largest player in the U.S. soon. High retention and net subscriber addition rates are evidence of a strong value proposition. The sources of this superior value proposition stem from, 1, a cost advantage that is shared with customers, 2, a data advantage driving more accurate underwriting, and, 3, switching costs and symbiotic value chain. Trump is vertically integrated, it owns its insurance subsidiary and is responsible for acquiring and servicing existing customers as well as underwriting their insurance. Trump estimates this vertical integration has eliminated frictional costs of circa 20% of revenues. These economic savings have been donated to consumers in the form of higher claims payout ratios. Trump's strategy has therefore been to sacrifice the near-term margin upside of this cost advantage in the pursuit of a larger and stickier customer base and subscription revenue pool. This cost advantage does not manifest itself in lower prices, but rather the highest sustainable expenditure on vet invoices per dollar of premiums. Trump has built a database over 15 years using 7.5 million pet months of information and greater than 1 million claims. It has segmented the market into 1.2 million price categories in order to more accurately underwrite insurance costs for a given pet. Of course, determining the point at which the marginal returns on incremental data diminish is difficult, but according to the CEO it would take a competitor 13 years to replicate this data asset. Although Nationwide is larger by number of pets enrolled, its data are likely to be less comprehensive for two reasons. 1. A lack of data for conditions not covered by policies, such as hereditary and congenital diseases, and 2. Pricing categories by state rather than zip code, even though the cost of vet care can vary widely within states. Trump considers its ability to accurately estimate the costs of pet healthcare costs by granular subcategories crucial to its leading value proposition. This allows for the provision of more relevant products for the customer. Trupanion Express is software that was developed by Trup and integrates with vets practice management systems. Through Trupanion Express, Trup pays vets directly, within 5 minutes of a vet invoice being submitted, disrupting the traditional insurance reimbursement model and obviating the need for customers to pay out of pocket and then submit a claim for the expense. This is clearly a superior solution to the reimbursement model in solving customers' cash flow problem associated with unexpected pet healthcare costs. In general, pet owners do not switch insurance providers due to the non-coverage of pre-existing conditions. Trupanion Express is installed in 10% of the 20k hospitals being visited by territory partners each year. The integration of this software is likely to improve the loyalty of pet owners and vets. Finally, Trup insurance seems to be a win-win-win proposition for pet owners, vets and Trup. Vets' treatment decisions can be dictated by efficacy rather than cost. Pet owners visit the vet more frequently and are more likely to agree to the vet's plan a treatment recommendation. The goal for territory partners is to sign vets up to Trupanion Express, which is free, removes bad debt issues and therefore fosters better relationships with customers. Trupanion Express also eliminates credit card fees, which may constitute circa 15% of a vet's profits. Pet owners have peace of mind that they will not be hit with unexpected large vet bills and are therefore also less likely to choose economic euthanasia or suboptimal treatment plans. With Trupanion Express they do not need to settle vet invoices out of pocket and then attempt to cover the claim through the traditional reimbursement model. Through Trupanion Express Trup improves the retention of its customer base, freeing up discretionary capital for accelerated pet acquisition. The addressable market is large and underpenetrated relative to other developed markets. The differences in these other markets are not demographic, social or economic, but rather, 1. The length of time comprehensive pet insurance has been available, 2. 
the value proposition in the form of higher claims payments as a ratio to premiums, higher loss ratios, and, 3, VET versus direct-to-consumer distribution models. Pet insurance companies in the U.S. typically do not cover hereditary and congenital conditions, which are the forms of illness most likely to be suffered by cats and dogs, they increase rates when claims are made, they impose payout limits, and pay claims according to an estimated cost schedule rather than actual VET invoices. Trump is different in all these respects and as such expects to grow the addressable market in North America to greater than 1% penetration. In any case, it appears to be the case that Trump's value proposition is driving adoption in North America. The unit economics associated with the pursuit of this opportunity to grow the company's assets are attractive. The cost to acquire a pet is c. $150, around 3x the average monthly ARPU. Assuming the current 10% discretionary margin and a 6-year average pet life, the IRR on new pets is 30-40%. to 40%. At a 15% discretionary margin the IRR would be double this. I estimate that both ARPUs and discretionary margins would need to decline by 20-25% to 25% to render reinvestment in pet acquisition a capital-destructive pursuit. This would contradict the economic reality of a market in which pet healthcare costs are increasing mid-single digits as new technologies and treatments are ported over from human healthcare, and the scalability of the business model. The CEO owns 7% of Trump equity slash $60 million and in total the executive leadership team owns 10%. This is C100x the CEO's annual compensation. He automatically sells 2% of his shares each year until he has sold 25% of his interest in the company by 2025. This has been a source of criticism from short sellers but given the large gap between stock ownership and annual remuneration, and the zero dividend policy, I don't think this represents misalignment with other minority owners of the business. Trump's quoted market cap is C. $800 million, circa 6x BV and 24x owner earnings of C. $33 million. A 4% owner earnings yield is reasonable for a business with Trump's high reinvestment rates and incremental returns on new capital investments if these can be successfully maintained. The strength of Trump's competitive position and evidence that their value proposition is attractive to pet owners suggests that they can. These owner earnings are one quarter of book value, and the company is growing its assets, enrolled pets, 20-30% to each year, 6xBV implies a 6% sustainable growth rate. Yet incremental returns on reinvested capital are higher than the return on existing net assets, leading to growth rates many multiples of that implied by the market. Finally, management expects scaling of the fixed cost base to drive margin expansion, leading to economic earnings growth higher than revenue growth. By 2020 if management achieves its targets, it should be generating C. $450 million of revenues and $65 to $70 million of discretionary profits. Given the company expects to reinvest all discretionary profits into growing enrolled pets, retained losses are unlikely to improve over that time, leading to a potential row of circa 50% in 2020 on an owner earnings basis. At the current price the stock would then be trading at a multiple of its book value that implied zero growth, despite the ample room for enrolled pet expansion afforded by low market penetration and a leading value proposition. Wishing everyone a healthy and happy year ahead, yours sincerely. Mark. A letter to partners, March 2019, The Six Deadly Sins of Institutional Money Management. Dear partners. My professional experience has provided a broad overview of the institutional investment management industry. Totally more benefits from this experience. It provides a context in which to judge our decision-making and prospects for delivering acceptable investment results to our partners. Specifically, Tullymore seeks to profit from several behavioral constraints impairing institutional money managers' execution of a sound long-term investment program. The pursuit of informational edge, 
Overconfidence can have profound consequences, inflating investors' valuation of their investments, leading physicians to gravitate too quickly to diagnoses, and making people intolerant of dissenting views. Studies suggest that confidence and accuracy are not highly related. The problem with this as it relates to investing is that the extra confidence causes us to increase the size of our bets without a corresponding increase in our capacity to predict outcomes, causing us to lose money. We do not build complex financial models, designed to convey broad knowledge versus deep understanding. We seek to shield ourselves from faulty heuristics by placing corporate access at the end of an investment process. We strive for simplicity and conduct work with the goal of gaining conviction in a handful of value drivers. The pursuit of analytical edge, the need to justify fees creates pressure to conceal rather than acknowledge ignorance, to build large teams and create the perception of deep intellectual expertise. This expertise increases the perceived validity of one's own opinions and makes one less receptive to non-experts. Deep perceived expertise promotes trust in intuition and lowers the inclination for hard system to work. This also geometrically increases the complexity of organizations, introduces groupthink, authority bias, and loss aversion by slowing down decision-making. We believe teams should be small, preserving accountability for decision-marking and direct communication channels. We would suggest that diverse teams, and independence of opinions, are likely prerequisites for collectively wise decisions. Mental flexibility, introspection, and the ability to properly calibrate evidence are at the core of rational thinking and are largely absent on IQ tests. Typical decision-makers allocate only a quarter of their time to thinking about the problem properly and learning from experience. Most spend their time gathering information, which feels like progress and appears diligent to superiors. But information without context is falsely empowering. Tolly Moore's large investment universe and concentrated portfolio obviate the need for valuation precision, which requires analytical edge. Marketing-led investment strategies, asset-gathering business objectives and gold-plated cost structures magnify the imperative to grow own. Investment firms led by marketers rather than investment managers create strategies tailored to what will sell rather than what works. Pressures to justify high management fees create an action bias that may be antithetical to good investment outcomes. Tolimore's strategy is capacity-constrained. Our focus is on returns versus assets and aligning the investment philosophy with the manager's temperament and investment partner's objectives. Short-term capital, asset-gathering mandates can lead to unidirectional manager due diligence processes, misaligned investor-manager relationships and procyclical capital flows. Short-term capital leads to short security holding periods, which directs investment managers' efforts away from understanding long-run business prospects and toward predicting share price movements. However, markets, unlike meteorology, are complex and reflexive, participants are second-guessing one another and the bases on which decisions are made are altered by the decisions themselves. The volatility of publicly traded securities makes it very difficult to guess short-term price movements. We do not direct our efforts to understand and analyze the market's thoughts. We conduct independent research and focus on long-term, lower volatility outcomes. As an emerging investment manager, we can develop an aligned and sympathetic investor cohort through two-way relationship building. We expect these efforts to allow us to focus on building substantial behavioral edge through an educated LP base capable of investing countercyclically over the long term. The long-term investor can purchase securities from sellers selling for non-fundamental reasons, redemptions from short-term capital, or because they think news flow will be temporarily negative, they have an eight-month holding period. Our objectives are to build a long-term aligned investor base with a business owner mentality, capable of tolerating periods of benchmark underperformance, assemble the capital and working environment that will allow us to act decisively when the odds are in our favor, 
create an environment that allows us to both average down and acknowledge mistakes, and surround ourselves with intellectually generous peers and investment partners. Manager-slash-investor misalignment. Managers and investors' fortunes are typically not aligned. This is a barrier to sound investment decision-making. A simple way to weed out the managers that back themselves is to consider the presence and power of incentives, insider ownership and performance-weighted fee structures. Managers without insider ownership are less incentivized to limit the size of their fund, therefore limiting their achievable time-weighted return. In our view, and in the case of most institutional money managers, the components of stewardship reflect a product to be sold rather than a strong belief in the strategy. Stories Investment management professionals often have short attention spans, driving the articulation of eloquent, memorable investment theses. Stories emanate from our continuous attempt to make sense of the world. As such they serve a purpose. The problem comes when we conflate explanatory power and predictive power. Story construction itself is problematic due to self-serving bias, our predilection for favoring decisions that enhance self-esteem. This results in attributing positive events to oneself and negative events as situational. The problem is compelling stories have characteristics that are antithetical to truth-finding. They are simple, ascribe outcomes to talent and stupidity versus luck, and focus on things that happen versus things that fail to happen. Narrative fallacy is the backward-looking mental drive to attribute a cause and effect chain to our knowledge of the past. Without searching for reasons, we would go around with blinders on, one thing simply happening after another. This helps us make sense of the world despite sensory overload. However, it can cause us to make poor decisions. The power of narrative causes us to violate probabilities and logic. Tollymore seeks to profit from narrative fallacy by applying logic to anomalies. That is, by specifically seeking out stocks without good stories, or those with bad stories, and to write about the companies we own and involved, long shelf life letters to partners. The forest and the trees, profiting from time arbitrage. Tollymore is in the business of applying logic to anomalies. Our goal is to identify mispricings that are afforded to us as long-term investors, and to exercise sound judgment when we encounter potential opportunities. The application of logic comes in the form of having the temperament, working environment and investor base to see the bigger picture. And to use noise to our advantage in lowering our cost of business ownership when appropriate, and therefore the rates of return we can enjoy as owners of publicly listed businesses. We describe below two recent examples of investment decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. In both cases we used our advantage as a long-term owner to acquire more shares of materially mispriced businesses at cheaper prices. We do not direct efforts to distilling the market's thoughts into a concise narrative. The complexity and reflexivity of financial markets renders this a low ROI pursuit. However, in the following examples it is our view that price action was at odds with the fundamental development of the company's long-term economic prospects. TripAdvisor, TRIP. U.S., we added modestly to our position in TRIP after 1Q19 results sent the stock down 11% to $49 share. Some of the news headlines that accompanied these results from the financial press included sales declines hit TripAdvisor, core hotel segment was flat, missing analyst expectations and TripAdvisor wasn't able to deliver the top-line growth that many were counting on seeing. We are not trying to predict share price movements, we are dot therefore not focused on analyst expectations nor trying to guess how our companies will do relative to them. It is also conceivable that management commentary on the call about softer-than-expected international demand, leading to a cautious Q2 revenue outlook may have also caused investors to sell their interest in this business as they extrapolate these demand fluctuations. That was the trees. How do we see the forest? We think the current level of profitability in the hotel's business can be taken as a proxy for owner earnings. 
Trip's reduction in performance marketing spend has driven large increases in profitability. The hotel segment recorded 41% EBITDA margins versus 30% a year ago. Yet hotel revenue still increased slightly yai. Meanwhile restaurants and experiences revenue grew 35% yai, but EBITDA losses widened too. $24 million from minus $4 million as Trip accelerated investments in adding bookable supply, which continues to double yai. This is the right move for a company concerned with enjoying the long-term barriers to entry of two-sided network effects. But it clearly dilutes short-term profitability. Three quarters of C. $180 billion 29 global experiences market is booked offline. A 5% share and 20% commission would imply sales of greater than TRIP's current total revenues. Yet experiences and dining today are just 20% of TRIP's revenues. Long-term we think it is reasonable to assume that the dining and experiences segment can enjoy profit levels at least in line with the hotel's business. The customer base is more fragmented, as such attractions earn higher commissions than hotel odas, circa 25%. What kind of forest is priced into the share price today? Trip expects to deliver double-digit EBITDA growth in 2019. Let's assume the business can generate $470 million of adjusted EBITDA. This is 8% of the current $6 billion enterprise value. Trip generated C. $350 million of reported FCF over the last 12 months despite significant and accelerated investments in growing bookable supply and dining and experiences. If we assume that the hotel's business is generating a proxy for owner earnings and normalize the profitability of experiences and dining to 40% EBITDA margins, this would add another C. $80 million to post-tax owner earnings. If we also capitalize the investments in TV advertising this would add a further $90 million after tax equals $520 million. These owner earnings are being generated on invested capital of less than $700 million, a 75% after-tax return, and a 9% yield to the cash-adjusted market cap. This implies an inability for TRIP to ever grow its earnings. A high internal reinvestment rate is the right capital allocation priority for intrinsic value compounding. Trip has been able to solve the chicken and egg problem associated with the development of strong platform business models by tapping into to its existing demand in hotel and connecting it to acquired or developed supply in non-hotel. For both restaurants and attractions, the number of reviewed items is multiples higher than the number of bookable items, and we expect low penetration rates of bookable inventory to provide a long volume growth runway. Jim Group, Jim.Lane, in March 2019 we acquired more shares of Jim at 190p slash share the same price at which we originally acquired shares in July 2017, and in the process increased our equity ownership quite meaningfully. Over that time the stock appreciated to 334p slash share by August 2018, and subsequently fell back to our original purchase price. Over this same period our estimate of the owner earnings of the business has appreciated materially, and our understanding of the long-term opportunity to grow the company's assets has not changed. As such, Jim represents a larger weighting in our portfolio today than it did back in July 2017. What were the trees in this instance? Management commentary around price reductions in several gyms across their estate, together with the capacity expansion plans of low-cost gym operator exercise 4 less prompted the publication of cautious-slash-negative sell-side research suggesting that market saturation and price competition are likely to erode future profits. In addition, Management's comments relating to back-end loaded gym opening plans caused analysts to reduce their near-term financial projections for the business. But the bigger picture remains that there is both scope for addressable market expansion, still one-third of new LCG members have never been a member, and market share gains from independent and multi-site private and public gyms. 
Jim might represent a quarter of LCGs but is still just 2% of the total number of gyms in the UK. There are more council gyms in the UK than private independent gyms, which are typically priced materially higher than their public counterparts. We think it logical that this proposition gap shrinks as low-cost gym chains become increasingly mainstream. It is not our expectation that Jim becomes a monopoly operator of gyms, the implausibility of this as a bare case improves Jim's investment merits as we see them. In July 2017, we estimated Jim's owner earnings to be c. 23 million pounds, a 9% yield to the market cap at that time. In March 2019, our estimated owner earnings were c. 35 million pounds, a 14% yield to the market cap. Over this time the incremental returns being enjoyed on new site investments, greater than 20% after tax cash on cash returns, and the capacity to reinvest mature estate cash flow into estate expansion remain largely undiminished. New Portfolio Investment, C Limited, SE. US. In March 2019 we acquired shares of C Limited at a price of $24 per share. SE is substantially owned by insiders. Forrest Lee, the founder CEO, owns 31% of the business and Tencent owns 33%. All directors as a group own 44% of the company. Management has shown a preference to direct efforts and capital to projects that they believe will create long-term value. SE operates three platform businesses in gaming, e-commerce and digital payments, primarily in seven Southeast Asian markets. Garenya distributes mobile and PC online games in its markets. Most games that Garenya distributes are done so exclusively. Garenya also recently had significant success with its first internally developed game, Free Fire, which was the fourth most downloaded game in the world in 2018 and was available outside of SE's core SE Asian markets, including Europe, LotAm and Africa. ShopA is an e-commerce marketplace which has adopted a mobile-first approach since its inception in 2015. ShopA is a platform for connecting buyers and sellers of long-tail products across fashion, health and beauty, home and living, and baby products. ShopPay provides tools such as payment, logistics and fulfillment. AirPay is a digital payments provider launched in 2014. Consumers can use the AirPay app as an e-wallet to pay for products and services. AirPay is integrated into the Garenya and ShopPay platforms. All three business models are platforms which require investment to drive scale and barriers to entry but have potential winner-take-most economic outcomes. Garenya's network effects emanate from the social, multiplayer nature of the games distributed. Each new gamer increases the value of the platform for existing users. This dynamic might suppress the cost of acquiring new users as the network grows in scale, as current users will tend to invite new users to the platform. Strong and long-tenured developer relationships turn the flywheel. Garenya's success in distributing games for local game players has facilitated relationships with international game developers such as Tencent, Riot Games, Electronic Arts and PUBG Corporation. This has allowed Garenya to source high-quality games from world-class developers, many of whom work as exclusive partners in SE Asia. Management is focused on the virtuous cycle dynamics of attracting more users with high-quality games, which attracts more high-quality developers. The more users they have and the more games they distribute the better they become at localizing games, increasing their appeal to gamers and developers. ShopA also has platform dynamics, as the number of buyers increases, ShopA attracts an increasing number of sellers, resulting in increases in SKU variety available on the platform, which increases the purchasing opportunities, and therefore monetization potential, or value, for each of those buyers. ShopA was the largest e-commerce platform in SE's region in 2018 by GMV and Total Orders. ShopA was also the most downloaded app in the shopping category in Southeast Asia in 2018. 
the long-tail products that are the focus of Shopee's marketplace support margins due to lighter price competition versus top-selling products. E-commerce lends itself to long-tail selling due to the capacity for predictive analytics and personalized recommendations to stimulate liquidity in niche markets. Sellers are supported through a network of payment providers and logistics partners, integrated into the platform, as well as local teams to help sellers make use of Shopee's business management tools. Shopee provides a one-stop shop allowing sellers to streamline store setup, inventory and revenue management, delivery and payment collection. The capacity for platform businesses to create substantial barriers to profitable participation may be quite broadly understood. As is the economic characteristic that additional users in a platform business model add more value for existing users. However, in addition, platform scale strengthens the ability of the platform to offer white-labeled goods and original content. Netflix uses customer preference data collected over time to deliver not just a marketplace of products, but original shows. Like Netflix, Gurenya intends to develop more original content while distributing third-party content. Based on customer intelligence, Amazon has circa 70 private label brands, which were started in niche categories like batteries. Amazon's marketplace dominance allows it to scrape the content of user reviews and return feedback of third-party products and use that information to create superior products that are more valuable to consumers. Garenia's user base growth and engagement are driven by the launch of new games, the expansion of existing games into new markets, and the improvement and launch of new content in existing games. Southeast Asia is the fastest-growing games market in the world, despite greater than 60% internet penetration. The region has the most engaged mobile internet users on the planet. Garenia organizes hundreds of esports events annually and operates the largest professional league in the region. In 2019, the global esports economy will grow to $900 million, a YI growth of 38%. Three quarters of this will come from sponsorships and advertising. Media rights, tickets, and merchandise make up the remainder. Global esports audiences, currently circa 380 million people, or 5% of the planet, have been growing in the mid teens. 20% of the global population is now aware of esports. This growth has been driven by streaming platforms such as Amazon-owned Twitch, which attracts 15 million viewers per day each spending 100 minutes per day watching live gaming. There is evidence to support the assertion that esports is becoming increasingly mainstream. Personnel have been recruited from mainstream sports media. A few years ago, Activision announced that it was forming a dedicated esports division, and it hired Steve Bornstein, former CEO of ESPN and the NFL Network, to lead it. Broadcasting rights deals are being struck with Twitch as well as mainstream broadcasters such as Disney and ESPN. Sponsorship is becoming more mainstream. Esports teams have traditionally been able to pull in sponsors that are already closely associated with gaming for example from PC gaming companies like Razer, computer makers HP and Intel, to Toyota and T-Mobile. Employment conditions of players are formalizing. Guaranteed contracts with minimum salaries are becoming more common, and teams are investing in state-of-the-art training facilities, including coaches, chefs, dietitians, and sports psychologists. Esports is big enough to fill an Olympic stadium. The finals of the League of Legends World Championship were held at the Beijing National Stadium. Esports are increasingly included in the thoughts of Olympic Games organizers around the world. Esports were featured at the 2018 Asian Games as a demonstration sport and will be a medal event at the 2022 Asian Games. Paris 2024 Olympic organizers were deep in talks about including esports as a demonstration sport at the Games. Shopee's capital allocation priority is to build marketplace scale and liquidity, and increasingly on monetization as GMV and market share continue to rise. It is this higher scale and liquidity that increases the rate at which the business can monetize its assets.
in management's words in the 2018 10K. We have made a strategic decision to invest in the growth of our Shopee marketplace by incurring sales and marketing expenses in advance of our monetization efforts. We believe that taking a thoughtful approach to monetization by building our user base and increasing engagement first will allow us to maximize our monetization in the future. And on the FY17 conference call. It's very clear in our mind, and it becomes clearer with every passing day, that almost all of our markets are consolidating very quickly and more quickly than we would have anticipated that even six or nine months ago. Secondly, as a matter of principle, when given the choice to ease our spend and maintain our share or invest more heavily to expand our share, we've chosen the latter strategy. Reason being, we believe that investment is going to help us achieve dominance in the categories that are so important to us, female long-tail categories. That kind of dominance and the ability to be the go-to platform for these important and very profitable categories as we've talked about in the past should bring us to higher monetization levels going forward. So really, just to conclude, at the end of the day, winning a merchant or a customer today in our mind is much better than having to spend more to win them in the future. The emphasis is ours, it seems consistent with a capital allocation objective to maximize total long-term value for owners and reflects a capacity to suffer that is a desirable quality for such long-term owners. E-commerce penetration is materially below global averages in almost all Shopee's markets, but e-commerce and m-commerce engagement in Indonesia, Shopee's largest market representing almost half of GMV, is the highest in the world. The GMV of the internet economy is 2.8% of SE Asia's GDP in 2018, up from 1.3% in 2015, and is projected to exceed 8% by 2025. SE Asia is almost 10 years behind the US, in which the GMV of the internet economy was 6.5% in 2016. The monetization of Shopee's customer is improving, driven by, 1, higher take rates increasing the gross profitability of transactions on the platform, and, 2, falling shipping subsidies driving sales and marketing leverage. Shopee's take rate, revenue slash GMV, is currently suppressed by efforts to build scale and market leadership, entrenching the network effects barriers to entry of the business. But the take rate has been increasing and management expects this to continue through a combination of commissions, advertising fees and value-added services. Outside of Taiwan, Shopee charges zero commissions. In Shopee's most competitive market, Singapore, peers are charging between 3% and 30% commissions. Kuten charges 8-12% to seller commissions in Singapore. 11 Street charges between 3% and 12% commissions rates to sellers in Thailand and Malaysia. In fashion, Shopee's largest category, sellers are charged 12%. Lazada charges on average 6.5% commissions plus a 2% payment fee in its markets. In fashion, sellers are charged 12% including the payment fee. Naturally the direct profitability of Shopee's business is driven by the take rate that Shopee can command on the GMV passing through its platform. In 2017 Shopee's take rate was practically zero and its gross margin was minus 125%. In 2018 the take rate was 2.8% and the gross margin was minus 65%. In 4Q18 Shopee's take rate was 3.7% and its gross margin was minus 52%. Even if we can expect diminishing marginal returns to higher take rates, the capacity to increase the take rate bodes well for the potential gross profitability of future transactions. Shopee has heavily subsidized the cost of shipping for its sellers in order to build supply scale. The extent of these subsidies has been declining without any noticeable impact of GMV growth, resulting in sales and marketing expenses declining as a percentage of revenues. Shipping subsidies declined kick in absolute dollar terms in 4Q18 as free shipping is now only available on baskets of a minimum size. 
This marketing efficiency improvement was achieved while GMV slash orders grew 27% slash 31% quarter on quarter. Sales and marketing as a percentage of GMV for Indonesia, ShopA's largest market, was lower than the ratio for ShopA as a whole, supporting the contention that scale drives operational leverage with respect to the cost of acquiring new customers. Management expects sales and marketing expenses to decline in absolute terms from here, signaling a potential inflection point in e-commerce profitability. What are the counterarguments to our conclusion that this is a high-quality business with avenues for profitable redeployment of capital? Negative experiences spread quickly online, and SE's business success is driven by customers' trust in the platform. Customers must believe they will be protected in order to transact safely online. As the number of connections and transactions grows exponentially there is a risk that this additional complexity renders SE's risk control measures inadequate. This might lead to negative network effects as one or both sides of the platform are driven away by unpleasant experiences. ShopAy verifies sellers, screens listings and has teams dedicated to dispute resolution. ShopAy also offers a ShopAy guarantee under which buyer payment is held by ShopAy until delivery of the goods, reducing settlement risks and encouraging buyers to purchase online. The huge increases in active user engagement across a variety of online services suggests consumer comfort with transacting online is increasing. E-commerce competition may inhibit user monetization. ShopAy may not be able to adequately monetize the transactions taking place on its platform. So far KPIs relating to the company's monetization progress are moving in the right direction. Take rates are increasing and subsidies are reducing without harming the company's asset growth. Changing gaming tastes. Garenia has 3-7 year agreements in place with multiple developers. It can use its experience as a distributor of games developed by others to improve the prospects for success in its own internal development ambitions. Free Fire is a short, but encouraging, piece of evidence that they may be able to do this successfully. Assuming, for now, that AirPay is worth nothing, what is the implied valuation of ShopAy for A? Range of sustainable growth hypotheses applied to Garenia's profits? If we assume that Garenia can never grow its EBITDA, an investor with a 10% opportunity cost of investing might be willing to pay 10x EBITDA, or C. $5.5 billion to earn this opportunity cost. This would imply a valuation of shop of $3.3 billion, one-third of SE's current enterprise value of $8.8 billion and 5x Shopay's expected sales this year. If we value Garenia at 16x EBITDA, or less than 4% sustainable EBITDA growth, both Shopay and AirPay are priced by the market as worthless. The implied value of less than $9 billion for Garenia would seem conservative given the business's demonstrated profit growth and potential. If ShopA and AirPay burn through SE's $2 billion cash pile but fail to make progress in demonstrating the ultimate path to sustainable profitability, we might be willing to pay $9 billion to own SE's equity, circa 18% downside from today's market cap of $10.8 billion. What assumptions does an owner of this business need to make to render his interest worthless? We could assume that Free Fire is a one-hit wonder, and therefore Garenia's profitability shrinks by some 30%, and never grows again. We might also need to assume that the company's cash balance of $2 billion is used to fund investment in AirPay and ShopAy which earns zero return, and that in addition SE continues to burn cash at the current rate of $750 million per year for the next five years, undiscounted. There is evidence to suggest that this is not an appropriate set of assumptions. ShopAy's take rates are improving, ShopAy's sales and marketing leverage is improving, and ShopAy's user, order and transaction growth remain strong. If Garenia can sustainably grow nominal EBITDA in line with real GDP growth in the region of circa 5%, 
AirPay is worth nothing and ShopPay is valued at 5x 2019 revenues, making no adjustments to revenue to reflect the potentially suppressed take rate, SE's equity is worth C. $16 billion, 50% higher than the current quoted market cap. If Gurenya can sustainably grow nominal EBITDA modestly more than real GDP growth in the region of circa 5%, AirPay is worth nothing and ShopPay is valued at 10x normal revenues, adjusting the estimated take rate from 4% to 10% in line with competitors in the region, SE's equity is worth C. $37 billion, 240% higher than the current quoted market cap. Private market transactions also suggest ShopPay could be materially undervalued. Tokopedia, a C2C business, like Tobao or eBay, but operating only in Indonesia, raised capital in 2018 which valued the enterprise at $7 billion, circa 1.5x the estimated GMV. Flipkart, the dominant Indian e-commerce business, was acquired by Walmart at a $21 billion valuation in 2018, implying an F-GMV of 2.8x. If we apply a 4% take rate to management's adjusted revenue guidance of $6,360 million, ShopPay could be processing C. $16 billion of GMV this year. At 0.5x GMV ShopPay is worth the entire enterprise value of C Limited. Thank you for entrusting me with your capital. With my best wishes. Mark.